Sometimes hearing that voice creates more of a connection to being in a training and having somebody walking you through. I think that kind of helps. So if a picture is worth a thousand words, then sometimes a process demonstration is worth 10,000 words, right? You're listening to Instruction by Design, your podcast to the art of teaching. In season two, episode six of IBD, we discuss the ever pertinent topic of instructional multimedia. Multimedia is defined by Richard E. Mayer as presentations involving words and pictures that are intended to foster learning. The term words refers to both printed and spoken text. In that episode, we attempted to delineate four types of online presentations. However, in the passion of our discourse, we inexplicably lost our way. Instructional multimedia formats such as audio recording, voiceover presentations, and video were readily addressed. Yet the fourth one never materialized on air. This episode today will look at that missing fourth format, screencasting. What is it? How do we do it? How do we do it well? We'll answer these questions, plus read some fan mail in this episode of IBD. Welcome to this episode of Instruction by Design, your podcast to the art of teaching. My name is Aaron Kraft from the Academic Innovation Team at ASU's College of Nursing and Health Innovation. Joining me today are my colleagues... Celia Kajwaitiwa. Jeanette Senecal. All right, so I'm going to start with an easy question. What is screencasting? Well, in its simplest form, it's basically just a video recording of a screen of some sort, like a computer screen or a mobile tablet screen, something like that, right? Right. Isn't there a narration component involved or is that optional? Optional, I would say. Some screencasts I've seen, yeah, have um, text bubbles or annotations that do not include audio, Mm -hmm, but there there is screen motion going on. Uh, Okay. So you don't necessarily need narration, but uh, a, a proper screencast will have either text or narration, most likely. Typically, yeah. Typically. So I'm curious, this was the first question I had when I was looking into this. What is the difference between a voiceover presentation and screencasting? In my mind, a voiceover presentation is more static images. So um, whether it's a slide moving through a slideshow, using PowerPoint slides or some sort of slideshow presentation tool, uh, recording voiceover on top of that, but there's no um, movement to show steps or what's actually happening on the screen. It's just moving through the static images versus screencasting, which you're able to follow the cursor, see exactly what's happening as you move through. I think of it in terms also of the difference between an explanation or a demonstration. Oh, Mm, that's interesting. And so which one is which? I'd say your voiceover PowerPoint lecture is more of an explanation with those static images potentially, whereas a screencast is actually dynamically demonstrating some of those steps live. Right. So when I think of voiceover presentation in lieu of your explanation, I'm thinking of Microsoft's PowerPoint software. Mm -hmm. It has an ability now to record narration per slide. Is this a voiceover presentation? If I were to record, I have 30 slides, I record my narration per slide, and then I ship it out for my students to listen to. Is that considered a voiceover presentation? Yes. Yeah. Categorically, I'd say that's pretty much it. There's a similar software for this too. Uh, What is it? Adobe Presenter. I know that's a popular one. 
It's a similar concept. You record narration per slide. Yes. And then the student sees a, there's a word for it, I can't remember, but basically you can paginate. You can either just hit play and let it run, mm -hmm. like this truck going right by. <laughs> <laughs> or you can paginate. You can go forward to slide three or 15 or, or whatever, and, or you can go back. A slide, right? So there's a, a, a linear yet non-linear aspect to that style of voiceover presentation. Usually with Adobe Presenter, you can set up a menu to right, be view, right. uh, viewable on the side so the students can kind of move through either in a linear fashion or click around to get from page to page or slide to slide, I should say. Yeah, that's a good description. I think there are a few other tools that accomplish a similar kind of end and also potentially add additional components. Um, one that springs to mind is Articulate Storyline, where oh, again, yeah. you could have a slide with an audio and then maybe in the middle you have an interactive activity of some sort mm -hmm. or something like that. Whereas screencasting is different because at least in when I visualize it now, I'm thinking of you have to go from the beginning to the end. There is no pagination. It's a single video unit, so to speak. There aren't sections. There's no table of contents. Yeah. You might be able to fast forward with your cursor, but otherwise it's a single holistic presentational unit. YouTube model. Yes. You're going to ah, sit there and YouTube. watch that start to finish pretty much. Mm -hmm. Yep. The other thing I was thinking about is that when you do screencasting, you're usually creating an actual video file like an mp4 oh. whereas with a lot of the voiceover presentations it it can be done but it's not the usual method of displaying the presentation mm -hmm. so usually they have their own kind of packages that they create their package files mm -hmm. there's several different types of files within a folder that you have to zip and then embed into the course and then deploy into the modules and we're speaking about deploying these through like a, a learning management uh, system type of platform yeah. mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right well, and being that kind of linked packaged multimedia, they can include those other elements like hyperlinks oh, yeah. and other elements that people can interact with potentially. Whereas in a pure screencasting video that's just a video, you're not going to have those other multimedia elements potentially that the users would interact with. Great point. That's so true. you would record your screen either with text or narration, most likely, mm -hmm. and then you can simply upload it to YouTube and embed that YouTube video uh, in your course, for example, mm -hmm. right? Whereas the voiceover presentation, you can have interactive elements like the hyperlinks. You can paginate from one point to the next and, and skip to whatever slide you want to go to directly, for example, mm -hmm. right? And I think that also depends on the software as well, because if you do use a software like, let's say, um, Captivate to do your screen recordings, they do have the option to add in links, HTML links, to where you those are clickable and work, right? Yeah, it depends on your output, though. Uh, then again, okay. so it's still back to that. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, let's talk about when we would use a screencast. When is screencasting useful? So just right offhand, for myself as an instructional designer working with faculty who email me daily for, you know, troubleshooting or quick question, how do I do this? A lot of the times I will quickly do a screencast and show the steps of how to get something accomplished 
if there's a lot of steps involved. Mm -hmm. um, I find that that's something quick. I can quickly hit record, get the file, and then send it over to the faculty. And they, they usually appreciate it. They always appreciate it. <laughs> Usually, <laughs> why do you think they, they appreciate, appreciate it? Why, why do you think so? I mean, w is this somehow preferable over sending instructions via text by email, for example? I think sometimes because they can hear me talking them through each step versus reading the steps, and because you know the other method that I use is just laying out the steps one by one and then highlighting the keywords. And sometimes that's helpful if it's something easy and short. But when it's more involved and there's a lot more going on and there's, you know, quite a few options that we don't want to get lost in, then I think it's a lot easier for them to follow because they mm -hmm. can see exactly where I'm pointing. I can talk them through and just sometimes hearing that voice and watching becomes more of a connected piece. It creates more of a connection to being in a training and having somebody walking you through. I think that kind of helps. Ooh, instructor presence much? Instructor presence, there you go. So if a picture is worth a thousand words, then sometimes a process demonstration is worth 10,000 words, mm -hmm. right? That's where I think about that in terms of a demonstration of a process. It's something that, yeah, you could probably describe it or you could capture a couple static images. But if you're trying to teach someone how to do something, and especially if it's a task that they don't do regularly, like once a semester, they need to set up a feature in a grade book and they only need to do it once or twice a year, having a little video that they can go back and watch that process is really valuable. I like this idea of complexity, right? So the need dictates the format. For example, if it's straightforward, if, if whatever you're trying to teach is straightforward, maybe a help document or a simple email will suffice. Throw a couple of images in there, a couple of basic instructions, boom, we're ready to go, mm -hmm. right? If you're trying to show somebody how to upload a video to YouTube and they're not familiar with the process, you have to show them how to log in. You have to show them how to navigate through YouTube. You have to show them how to find the upload link and then find their file. Hopefully they know how to create a file in the first place, right? <laughs> and then walk them through the steps of private, unlisted, public, putting in your descriptions. And then, oh, by the way, it's got a process, so give it a few minutes to do that, right? Or maybe a long time if it's a long video. You know, it gets quite complex at that point. So it seems to me like in that situation, you would want to just screencast the process and save everybody a lot of trouble. Right. So if you're an instructional designer or a faculty mm -hmm. instructor, then you want to use screencasting for creating trainings and tutorials. I know I've done it before. Yes. I've actually I've that example was from my own experience of having to show students how to upload uh, their videos to YouTube. And it's kind of nice because you can do, you know, quick five minute uh, videos and throw them out there or you can use. If you know that you're going to create something that is going to be um, something that you're going to continue to use over and over again and you want it uh, to be a more polished look, then you can use, you know, ed editing software or even more complex software to create something on a bigger scale. So is the insinuation here that screencasting is maybe a little basic or uh, it's not necessarily a very polished product? I mean, I'm thinking if I'm just showing you my screen, I'm not worried about audio video fidelity necessarily. As long as mm -hmm. you can see the screen, maybe I'm talking into a cheap uh, headset, right? Yeah. Is that kind of what you're getting at here? I'm thinking more in terms of how much involved 
how how involved you want to be in the screencast mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. and your needs. If it's something quick, it's very easy to get that screencast done and out of the way. If it's something that you want polished, you're going to spend a little more time with your recording and kind of laying it out and planning it out and putting a little more thought into it. So we can have both polished and unpolished screencasts. Exactly. It really depends again on the need. Is yep. that what you're saying? Mm-hmm. How about your objective? What's ah. the objective? <laughs> We are instructional designers after all. (laughs) How about for the students? Mm -hmm. Why should they watch a screencast over, say, just reading some instructions? Um, One example is in a computer information course, students learning how to use a specific piece of software, for example, Excel. It's very difficult to just read text about Excel and know exactly what to do. Great example, because Excel, even just hearing that word Excel, my brain just collapses. Yes. So watching a screencast and watching someone move through the actual steps to accomplish what's needing to be done is a lot easier for a student to follow. I think it's generally agreed upon that images with text and narration is preferable or at least rather effective compared to just text yes, or just audio. Definitely. And you can use it as or just images. the original kind of lecture of how to do something. Let's say you're in an online course. That might be your first, you know, experience with learning how to do Excel or in a face to face course. It could be used as a resource to go back to. Um, Maybe you introduced it in class, you showed them the steps, but now you're actually adding a screencast into their um, LMS, their learning management system for the students to use as a resource to come back to if they can't remember what exactly they did in class. Same thing with faculty. Yeah, it's such a flexible medium. Mm -hmm. Can students screencast? Or is this a tool mainly for instructors and instructional designers? Students are forbidden. <laughs> All <laughs> right, may. you've heard it here they first. <laughs> not to do any screencasting. You know, even if they don't have a specific piece of software that is for screencasting, the technology now has made it so much easier for anyone to do it. I mean, look at iPhones. They have a record feature so mm-hmm. that you can record what you're doing on your phone. Um, and it's just, a good quality image, it too. Is. The camera on an iPhone is actually really quite good. And with this latest update with Mojave in, um, on the Mac side, they've... Mac OS. Yeah, Mac OS. They've um, now, well, I think they did have a screen record option before, but I've been using it lately a lot since I did my Mojave update, and that one has worked out Quick really time. well. Yes. QuickTime mm-hmm. has a screen recording feature, yes. in it, and that's been mm-hmm. a part of its uh, functionality for a long time, as, as long as I can remember, anyways. Yeah, so even the general tools that students have have the ability to do, to do screencasting. What a great transition. Let's talk about some popular or common screen casting tools that we can use. Well, that was a great segue to thinking about what's already built into the various systems you're already using. Mm-hmm. But depending on the features you need, depending on the objectives for what you're trying to accomplish, there are a lot of really powerful and, and flexible tools out there. Certainly TechSmith as a company has a ton of Camtasia related tools in their portfolio ranging from the very simple Jing, which is free, um, five-minute limit videos. Anybody can install it on just about any platform. 
all the way on up to Cam Studio, which you have full editing and interactive features. Um, Jing only allows for five minute videos. That's the limit. But it's free. Yeah, it's free. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, it's yep. not a bad trade-off, I suppose. Absolutely. Plus, do we really want videos longer than five minutes? <laughs> that's well, another good question. That's yeah. A, yeah, definitely consideration. Mm -hmm. In that earlier episode you alluded to in the introduction, we talked a lot about what I think Ricardo branded as fun-sized lectures. Mm -hmm. And again, I mean, perhaps you're trying to demonstrate a really complex process, but could you break it up into chunks or steps potentially so that your viewers not locked into a 38-minute, you know, one take wonder right mm -hmm. right some would call those sub objectives Excellent working point. your way to the full objective you have sub objectives so thinking in that term can sometimes help you break those down nice so we have jing jing is compatible for both mac and pc from what i understand yep mm -hmm. then we also have speaking of TechSmith products camtasia and camtasia has at least two versions that i'm aware of relay which is quite simple and straightforward and Studio, which is a little pricey, a little more involved, a little more complicated, but offers a more polished final product. Are you familiar with these at all? Yes, definitely. Yeah, I was actually alluding to that with that Cam Studio oh, um, yeah, as yeah. far as the full package editing tool. I have used Relay, and it's, it is nice for one take, sort of lower threshold mm -hmm. um, screencast, but there's little to no ability to fine tune those after right. you've done the recording, so you'd have to start over. That seems like the kind of thing you'd want to use if you just, somebody asked you a question, how do I do such and such? You don't want to put a lot of time into it, but you got to get them, you got to get them a tutorial in mm -hmm. a timely manner. So you say, okay, I'm just going to quickly record this on relay, hit record, put your headset on, da da da, da I'm done, send it off, we're yeah. good to go. Mm -hmm. And then you have tools like Adobe Captivate, which really started out a long time ago as a pretty much a straightforward screencasting tool, but has really moved much more into that sophisticated interactive e-learning platform where yes you can record a screencast sort of as part of an entire suite but you're probably going to be doing more than just screencasting with a tool like that there's also screencast-o-matic which starts out um, with free features and then if you upgrade and go into the premium then you get more involved tools to i haven't used that uh, one screencast-o-matic yeah it it's getting out there yeah i've used the free version i haven't um tried out any of their premium tools, but from what I hear, it has quite a bit to offer. So let's categorize by free and not free. We have Jing for mm -hmm. both Mac and PC. That's free, you get a limited uh, set of functionality, but it's still free screencasting. Uh, QuickTime on Macs. Yes. And then one that I, th I believe does screencasting, though I've never used it for screencasting, is good old VLC player. If way VLC, back, okay, that, yeah. That was, yeah, I was just gonna look up what Windows has. <laughs> well, VLC will work on Mac and Windows. Okay, though, if you have a Mac, I would say just use QuickTime. But yeah, VLC, you know, if if VLC can't play that video file, then nothing will play it. Mm -hmm. That has been the gold standard for free media players for ever since again, ever since I can remember. I always thought of VLC as a a Windows product. I didn't even like. I don't think I've ever used it on Mac. I hope I'm not misspeaking here, but I'm pretty sure there's a Mac version <laughs> too. But yeah, it's on Windows. So you can download it for Windows. Uh -huh. And if you have a Mac, just use QuickTime. Another tool that I recently learned about, I haven't personally tried yet, is Loom. And I understand mm -hmm. that they're marketing their product based on kind of a, a one-step kind of process like Jing, where you can record and then you automatically get a shareable URL. So it's not something where you have to download 
a mm. video file and then host to a streaming service like YouTube or something comparable. So it's it's a little bit easier in the deployment and product mm-hmm. sense. Okay. I've also heard of Screener, but I haven't used that one myself either. And I believe they have a free version and then you have to pay. But don't quote me on that because I can't remember completely. <laughs> so if you're wanting to make a polished product, which one of these would you look at? I mean, we've, we've talked about the free ones that can get the job done. But what if you want to make something a little more high end, something a little more polished? What do you mean I by would... polished? Oh, so good question. I'm thinking, oh, I made a mistake. Let me edit that out. Or I'm thinking I want to add a circle around the particular text that I'm referring to at three minutes and eight seconds in. And then I want that circle to eventually fade when I go to the next slide, for example, or or, Uh, however I have it planned out. So like screen enhancements, things like that? Enhancements, basic editing, and even exporting details. Like maybe I want a YouTube-friendly export file, or maybe I want, what is that, H dot... I can never remember the numbers after that, but it's the most common, or one of the most common video exporting formats. But anyways, you can have multiple options, right? You know, MP4... And so on, so on. I'm definitely not a video expert. <laughs> All I know is when I look at the list, there's a whole bunch. Right. <laughs> I either go for the H dot something or MP4 myself. Well, in that case, for that kind of complexity, I had really good experiences with Camtasia Studio. Again, there's a lot of powerful options available and definitely, I think, allows for that multiple output um, decision that you were, you were referring to. In addition to the fact that in, you could you could put it out as an HTML5 package, which, which allows you to do things like interactive pieces or quizzes or whatever. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, that's right. It does do that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I've used that. Yes, Celia. Can I jump back a minute on the screener? Because I just looked it up. And it's actually a web extension. Um, you can get it from the Chrome store. It's free. And right now they're working on integrations with tools like Slack, Trello, GitHub. So it can grab your browser window and move through that. So just a little update. (laughs) Your browser window. So whatever content you're trying to explain needs to be within the browser window, not necessarily just on your screen. Like because if you open up a PowerPoint, that's through... Microsoft PowerPoint, mm-hmm. but this would have to be through. The I browser. can't tell if it has to be through that, but it is a oh, browser okay. extension. So I like Camtasia Studio as well. I look at it as the middle option, whereas your VLC, your QuickTime, your Jing, these are the basic screen casting tools that get the job done. But when you want to step up the polish a little bit in the editing, I like Camtasia Studio, not only because you have a lot of options, you can do fade outs and fade ins and you, you can separate the audio track from the video and, you know, which for me is very really helpful because I'm an audiophile. So I, I like messing with that stuff. But it's also very easy to use. It's still quite intuitive. It doesn't have the learning curve of, say, uh, Adobe Premiere. That's exactly. I started out in video. So all of a lot of my editing was always done in Premiere. And then when I became an instructional designer and started working with screencast tools, then I started with Captivate. Mm -hmm. And I was like, wow, this is so similar. Like, why do I even need both tools? And then I realized, oh, no, this one definitely lends itself to like easy access to the tools you need for screen screencasting, even though I could make it happen in Premiere. 
It was like, this is made definitely for the screencasting. Premiere is like, if you got the experience, the know-how, and you want to put out that pro product, I'm all for that. And yeah. <laughs> I've, I've done it when I've had the time. I've mm -hmm. used Premiere to, to put out uh, tutorials. Yes. Right. But, but it's definitely more complex. It's more complex. It's for a different purpose. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, so here's the uh, practical application piece. I always try to include it when I host the IBD podcast. So I would like to ask, what are some best practices to keep in mind while screencasting that instructors and instructional designers can use right now? I would say definitely be prepared. When I'm ready to create a polished piece, I usually create a script ahead of time and work out exactly what those steps are going to look like so that as I'm recording, I'm not doing a lot of the ums or like the, oh, shoots, I went to the wrong page or, oh, sorry, don't follow that piece. Um, I find that that helps a lot. Plus, it shortens the recording time, the That's amount of edits deal. you have to take. That's a great point. Even if I'm not going to script uh, word for word or screen by screen, I'll still do something that I call a storyboard. I don't know if that's the technically correct term, yes. but it's more like a draft version. So I know generally the outline of what I'm going to do, mm -hmm. the points that I want to hit, and that way hopefully I don't forget anything. So templates, scripts, all very helpful. Yeah. Planning. And sometimes I just run through it before I actually hit record just to kind of wrap my mind like, okay. Because sometimes when you're working with, especially right now with Canvas and doing, you know, moving over to a new LMS, you sometimes forget exactly what the path is to get somewhere. Right. And so even sometimes when I'm explaining to a faculty, I'll say, oh, go here. And I'm like, oh, no, no, it's not there. It's over here. So moving through it ahead of time helps. Right. No, I, I can't agree enough. Be prepared. Have mm -hmm. your space ready, have the application you're going to use easily accessible, like instead of having to dive through your applications on your computer, have it have it someplace where you need it. I'm just thinking that if I'm screencasting, I'm on, I'm performing. So I have to be in a certain I have to be in a certain readiness. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's not a permanent state for me. I'm not the sage on the stage type. So <laughs> when I'm ready to go mentally, I need to be able to just put on my headset, find the application put up the content on my screen and go. So I think organization's a big deal. And I, then, you mentioned headsets. So uh, if you oh, are going to yes. record narration, mm. that, that mm -hmm. leads me to thinking we should recommend they use a good microphone. Mm -hmm. And by good, I don't necessarily mean expensive, but maybe something that's better than just the open mic on a laptop. Well, mm -hmm. What are the yeah. options that we have? We have them. Okay, so you said the uh, microphone on the, on the laptop or on the iMac. Mm -hmm. What else do we have? A USB headset microphone, potentially. Which is probably Usually, most common. Yeah, mm -hmm. pretty inexpensive, pretty common. And then, and then a full-on. The full-on microphone, mm -hmm. yeah. I'm thinking of Blue, this brand Blue, B-L-U-E. They have these Yeti microphones that are very popular over the past several years, uh, mostly for like podcasting, right? But um, the price isn't too bad, and they sit on your desk, or you can get like a desk mount, like it's a little arm, a retractable arm that you can sort of hover in front. That way when you uh, hit the desk, it doesn't travel through the oh. stand. So I, I like those, and that's, that's definitely going a little more pro, but the quality of audio you get from that is, is actually, to me it's worth it, but like I said before, I'm an audiophile, so I'll go the extra <laughs> mile to get that, that clean, crisp, full-bodied, refreshing Sounds like a beer commercial, but I'm, I'm talking about audio. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, being on the topic of microphones, I would also suggest finding a quiet place because those microphones pick up 
other noises. That's so a big one. Yeah. I would definitely suggest um, finding a quiet space where, you know, there there will be minimum to no interruptions. Um, even things like being at home and knowing you have a, a pet and that pet, you know, barking at the wrong time. Or I um, do frequent calls with uh, one of my faculty members and she has a dog who snores. And you can usually like through our calls hear him snoring oh, on the geez. side. And sometimes it's so funny because he'll get loud all of a sudden. And <laughs> But, you know, if we were going to be screencasting something, I would suggest, OK, maybe the dog has to be outside or, you know, not in that particular space at that time. So, you know what I do in these kind of situations? I will put a heavy blanket or my shower robe over my head and over the microphone to basically uh, block out any external sound and act as a dampener, which actually gives it more warm, gives, mm -hmm. gives the audio more warmth. There's a visual image for you. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> or you could go the full-on egg carton method and start stapling your walls. With it <laughs> saves the holes in your walls, and it's a very cost-effective <laughs> approach to, to good audio. <laughs> I don't think my wife would let me redo the bedroom into a uh, <laughs> into an audio recording room <laughs> as much as I want to. All right. Well, thank you, everybody, for your inputs. Uh, anything else? Go forth and screencast. Okay. On to our next portion. Fan mail. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> Today's fan mail comes from Burrell Charity. He says, hey, Aaron, I listen to your IBD podcast and I'm a big fan. Wow. Thank you, Burrell. That's awesome, by the way. It's so good to know we actually have... We have a fan. We have a fan. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so relieved to hear that someone's listening to this. He goes on, I recently finished my master's in ID and technology and created my own company to practice. So this guy is ambitious. And I want to say congratulations on completing your master's. That is a huge mountain to climb. Absolutely. Could you please provide me with a link or two to some great examples of online courses? It would be amazing if you or someone on the team could help me out. Burrell Charity, Masters of Education. Now, Burrell and I went back and forth a little bit by email, but how, how do you, would you two address this question? Because it, it made me think. It made me stop and think for a minute. Well, initially, I think one of the words that brought to this conversation was exemplary. What does an exemplary course, online course, look like? What does that mean? And my immediate reaction was, well, what is the definition of exemplary? Like, what what parameters are you looking at? What criteria? Because yeah. I, could, I could think of several different things that might touch on exemplary. But I took it to mean more generally sort of layout, design, organization, things that are sort of cosmetic that are visible, again, asking for a link, something to look at, mm -hmm. but also that uh, demonstrate an alignment across learning materials of some sort. Probably. Yes. This yes. is just, this is just, you know, making stuff up. So in that sense, what other objective systems are out there that demonstrate what it means to have an exemplary course in terms of design? Quality matters. Um, some of the Sloan OLC consortium tools, right? Right. What else is out there objectively that you can think of in a criteria capacity to define an exemplary course? I'm not sure. <laughs> I'd have, I'd, it would be something that I would have to think about a lot outside of thinking just QM and OLC. 
I would also think about resources that are like the depositories, like, uh, gosh, what are, what are they called? Open um, educational resources? Oh, oh, OERs. But I would look at OER resources, a lot of those. Um, I know the one specifically from California, Cal State has their OER. I can't remember what it's called. Merlot? Merlot, thank you. Um, they have some courses that you could look at. But my other thought was, when I thought about this question, was um, what's the objective of the course what are the outcomes of the course first? Because mm -hmm. if you, there's different ways of looking at what an exemplary course would look like, depending on, is it a theory-based course or is it a... Oh yeah, um, your course design is going to change drastically yeah, if you're talking on about science and engineering mm -hmm. as opposed to humanities and the arts. Exactly. One's very prescriptive. Yes. The other is, is uh, open to group dialogue and not having a right answer, but formulating and creating your sort of own understanding of the topic. Right? Exactly. So how do so, you create that framework? How do you create those assignments and those assessments? So there's so many other, so many variables in figuring out what exactly would make an exemplary course. Well, I responded with check out Quality Matters, check out their peer reviewer certification course. It's titled something like that. Uh, we took that. We, mm -hmm. we went through that. Um, if you're talking about designing uh, courses for higher ed specifically, I think that OLC and QM are a fantastic place to start because you can apply those principles in your engineering course or in your humanities course. And if you can meet those criteria, then chances are you're going to increase the chances of the students having a successful learning experience. I'm not sure there's a a foolproof answer to this question, but there are ways that we can mitigate disaster and improve the chances for success. Yes. Thank you, Burrell, for reaching out. And one more thought with the tiny little bit of rant card hesitation. There are still some decent MOOCs or massive online open courses mm -hmm. out there yeah. that just for a surveying kind of perspective, wouldn't hurt to look through just to get ideas about ways to design and build different kinds of courses. Right. I actually just started uh, edX, edX's Computer Science mm -hmm. 101 mm -hmm. MOOC or uh, something like that. But I've only gone through the first lesson so far. <laughs> I'll, I'll pat myself on the back if I actually make it through the entire thing. But um, It's good to see how different institutions are approaching these concepts, right? Mm -hmm. I was really impressed with their use of video they have multiple angles. It's not just a single camera in the center of the uh, lecture hall, but instead you have multiple angles and you have great audio. So obviously they're miking up the instructor as he's talking and it's a full production. And then the video player itself is very well fleshed out. And, you know, these are considerations that I would say not all institutions are looking at or considering when they're putting out their multimedia, uh, instructional multimedia. So usability, aesthetics, those are all things that you might consider yes. as part mm -hmm. of your formula. Also accessibility, I would argue, too, making sure that those materials are um, as available, compliant, and usable yes. by the widest range of people. Mm -hmm. if, again, QM addresses that. Right. But there's also UDL, Universal mm -hmm. Design. Mm -hmm. For learning. learning. For learning. Thank you. <laughs> principles. <laughs> all right. Okay, we've managed to explore the various aspects of screencasting, including what it is, how to do it, 
including some tips on how to do it well. So thank you team for podcasting your thoughts on screencasting. Also, special thanks to Burrell Charity for being an enthusiastic listener and reaching out to us and making us use our brains. And if you, our audience, would like to share your thoughts, questions, or just say hi, feel free to reach out to us on Twitter or by email. We love hearing from you. This has been another episode of IBD with Celia Kuchwaitiwa, Jeanette Senecal, and myself, Aaron Kraft. You can reach us on Twitter at IBD underscore podcast. That is IBD, as an in instruction by design, underscore podcast. Or you can email us at instructionbydesign at asu.edu. To find previous episodes, please visit our website at links.asu.edu slash IBD underscore podcast. This podcast was produced by Arizona State University's College of Nursing and Health Innovation. I think, no, it's more on you can do both. What'd you call? (laughs) 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 See, he he like picks on himself with my words. Like, I'm not, (laughs) I don't even have to intentionally, intentionally do it. What's going on in his brain? (laughs) Well, there you go. (laughs) 